When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Our guest this week is a businesswoman who has become one of the icons of our turbulent political age, taking the British government to court and winning, not once, but twice. Every day she faces death threats and racist abuse. Yet she shows no signs of wavering in her commitment to speaking truth to power. I mean, of course, Gina Miller. In a live interview recorded a little before the general election in December, Gina revealed her extraordinary life story to our presenter, Hannah McInnes. everyone thank you very much indeed for coming it's wonderful to see so many of you choosing to spend your evening here with us um, I obviously think you've made a very wise and informed decision in doing so I'm thrilled to welcome you on behalf of the How To Academy and we are so privileged that Gina has decided to come here this evening and to tell us her story um, as I'm sure many of you know it is a pretty extraordinary story She doesn't need much introduction. She's a businesswoman, a campaigner, an author, and will most likely go down in history as the woman who took on the UK government, took them to court not once but twice um, and won on both occasions. Uh, Of course, in 2016, she took on the UK government uh, and won, stopping them from triggering Article 50 or beginning the process of leaving the EU without Parliament having its say, and the judges ruled unanimously that Parliament was sovereign. Uh, It was one of the biggest, I think, the biggest constitutional case in the last 400 years and threw her into the limelight, which in the thorny and divisive (laughs) age of Brexit is not the best place to be. Uh, And as a result, she was the target and has been the target of some unimaginable abuse and threats, but it hasn't deterred her. Uh, And she took them on again, I think in September, not very long ago. It was September, wasn't it? Just a few months ago (laughs) this year. uh, And won, and the Supreme Court ruled that Boris Johnson's decision to prorogue uh, Parliament was, of course, uh, unlawful. Um, I say she wasn't deterred, and when you read her fantastic book, Rise, which is a recent book that came out this year and tells of her life and some significant challenges that she's faced along the way, one wonders whether there's anything that would deter you uh, in your determination, your unwavering commitment to stand up for what you believe is right. Uh, I think you, you say in your book... I don't have a history of backing down, quite the opposite. I firmly believe that if you see things going wrong, it's important to raise your voice. Have you always been like that? As far back as I can remember. But first of all, can I say thank you as well for everyone coming out this evening? Um, It's extraordinary. Thank you. Uh, I think as my earliest memories was probably being about three and being at school. And you know that really annoying little girl in the classroom who always questions the teacher and asks, why, why, but, miss, that was me. (laughs) Um, So I just, there was just always something in me that questioned and was curious. 
Um, I think my, my family now call me a mental and physical fidget. Um, <laughs> and this is probably a very good description. But I've, I just am curious, it's that sense of curiosity, but also, I think I was born with it, but then nurtured by my parents, particularly my father, yeah. a sense, a really strong sense of injustice or justice, and, and basically seeing people hurting and wanting to do something about it. So you were brought up in Guyana, in British Guyana, and he was one of, it seems in, in the book you write about him, he seems to have been a very strong influence in you essentially finding that, that voice. T- tell us a little bit about how he shaped the person you then became on. If I have enough time to write another book, it may well be about him, because uh, this was, as a young man, he was 14 years old, serving petrol, couldn't read or write, um, saved all his money up, went to night school, then law school, and ended up as our attorney general, which is an extraordinary story. But I was incredibly fortunate to be his daughter. I grew up at his knees. He would come home sort of when I was about six or seven. I had really long hair. And he'd sort of, we'd sit outside on the porch in the evening breeze and he'd brush my hair and tell me about his day uh, in a language that I understood. He was a criminal barrister. He fought for um, human rights. He did a lot of pro bono work. And he'd tell me about right and wrong and why people were being, because we had the death sentence. We still do. And so that was, you know, to be defending someone, a 17-year-old who might have used a machete because he got drunk in the wrong place and be facing death. And parents coming and begging, holding my dad's feet and telling him, save my son, is an extraordinary story to hear when you're a child. But that, the time he gave me, it was extraordinary. And he filled me with such confidence as well as to how somebody could change the outcome of somebody else's life. So I was very fortunate to grow up with him. But he never treated me either as though I had three brothers and it was me, and he never treated me as though I was any lesser than my brothers. You so, said you were a tomboy, were you? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> growing up with three boys, growing up in a country with no television, um, every week we'd run down to get the local book that came in from the UK, because as in most Commonwealth countries, everyone looks to the UK. So we couldn't wait to get the latest books, you know, be it um, you know, Charles Dickens to Famous Five to... And then from America, all the comic books. So we would, we, I mean, I grew up with Marvel and DC comic books. So I thought everyone could be superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had a, a, an environment uh, growing up, a real richness to our life. And uh, I was privileged as well to be able to use my imagination. And so, you know, with my brothers, we'd run around. I'd get tied up in cowboys and Indians, and they'd forget about me in the garden. And, uh, you know, and, uh, another time I'd be Superwoman jumping off the balcony. We had, it was a wonderful childhood. But then in the evenings, my parents were very strict. When BBC World Service came on, we had to sit and listen. My mother would collect uh, the blue Wedgwood that came from the UK. At Christmas time, in the boiling humidity, we'd have a Christmas tree, Queen on the Wall, we'd listen to the service. It was it was the way we were brought up. Um, and, you know, many people think that El Dorado is in Guyana. Actually, growing up, we all thought Britain was El Dorado. Um, and so it was, it was wonderful. But at the same time, there was a real sense of discipline in the family as well. And you left and you came over to the UK when you were, I think you were only 11 and went to boarding school. One of the things I said at the beginning is that you've been the subject of... of unimaginable abuse but early on at school I think you suffered bullying and you had an extraordinary way of of dealing them reading about it I I wanted to sort of 
tell friends I know whose children are being bullied at school, look, this is the way. Tell us a little bit about your approach to the bullies at school. Coming to the UK, I have to say there are some... I'm not somebody who tends to stop, so writing the book was really quite a therapeutic experience for me um, to have to look to see how my life has evolved. But I was actually... The irony is I was sent to the UK to be safe because my father didn't lead, but he was um, instrumental in forming a new political party against our dictator. And the young, very uh, wonderful, charismatic leader was killed. And my parents found out that my elder brother, who's a few years older than I, that we were the next target. So we were actually sent to the UK to be safe. You think about that in in my present life, it's quite, you know, there are many ironies. But they found this tiny little boarding school in Eastbourne, because they thought we'd be safe. And my brother was at Eastbourne College, and I was at my little boarding school, Bearing in mind, I said that I'd read Famous Five and George and Lemonade and what I thought Britain was like. Being in a boarding school in Eastbourne was a little different. Um, I remember thinking, how can you eat peas with a fork? <laughs> but it was, it was very different. I'd never left home. I'd never been away from my parents. And my mother decided um, she would give me something so I'd have the scent of my mother. And she ha- used to wear this perfume called Le de Ton, Nina Rishi, which had this beautiful dove and the stopper, and it was so aesthetically beautiful, but my mother gave it to me, so every Sunday when we were going to church, I'd dab a little bit on, and the girls poured it away and filled it with water, and I realized um, they had done that, but I wouldn't cry in front of them, so I'd sort of sob in the bathroom in the towel, and then I thought, now let's work out why they're doing this to me, and I, one of the ringleader was particularly uh, bossy, but she was very much in charge of the school and and what was going on in school. But there was something about her that I thought was so lonely. She just, she had all these friends, but she didn't. So I decided I'd give her a present. So uh, my parents had also given me uh, some jewellery. So I wrapped up one of my bracelets that my mother had given me, and I gave it to her. And I said, this is so that we could be friends. I didn't do it to bribe her. I just wanted to know that there we could be friends. She never bullied me after that again. Um, we were never particularly friends. But I have to say, in the about a year after the first case in Miller One, I got a letter from her. She lives in Canada now, saying it's the most precious gift she's ever had, and that growing up, her parents were diplomats and never sent her a birthday card, presents, never sort of remembered about her. And it was the first time anyone had been kind to her. And I think there's a real story there about not presuming that you understand what motivates somebody mm-hmm. and taking the time to reach out to them. And that's the first time I did it in a way that I think was very meaningful for her. Now, of course, it's harder. You can't reach out, obviously, in that way. But do you try and have that same empathy with the people who wish you badly and do, do, can you see their grievances they, they think that you're stopping the Brexit that they voted for so my poor family my husband here knows that most of my summers and my holidays I actually go and travel to areas of voted leave um, and I de- deliberately go and have conversations because I want people to know that they are, that they are being heard and I want to reach out so I still very much do that and I tend to say my first two things, like evenings like this evening, you know, with a, hall, with a room full of people who are not necessarily my friends or supportive, I will sit and wait till they quieten in down and I'll say, I'm sorry that you feel that you're not being heard. What can we do? I'm here to listen. Tell me. 
and we talk, and what I realize is that people are more or less the same. They worry about their families, they worry about their jobs, their security, putting food on the table. We're not that different. Um, when you strip away how we judge each other, we're really not that different. And I do take the time to do that. And uh, it is worth doing it. Sometimes I use humor because I think it's a great way of bringing people together. I discovered someone sent me the other day a link to a website that's um, raised over £200,000 to send me back home, <laughs> which I found is extraordinary. So I, I sort of Googled, I looked around the website, <laughs> found the coding uh, of the person who set up the website, and I sent him an email. And I said, it's really kind of you to raise this money, but my, my taxi fare is £20, so perhaps you'd like to return the rest of the money. So I didn't hear back from him, but I do do that. I, uh, so I, I will reach out. I don't tend to ignore people. If someone says something false, I will call them out. Because I think if you let people believe that they have the better of you or that they can bully you, they've won. And nobody's going to bully me. So... I do tend to reach out. But, so, so, I mean, if only everybody did do the same. We are, it is becoming extremely toxic. And you talk about that in the book, and you don't need me to sort of quote it from the book. It's obvious to everyone. Do you see a, a way out of this incredibly divisive and tribal space that we're in? Well, first of all, I'd say we didn't get here overnight. In my view, it has been decades of neglect, where we have moved to a place where politicians have become professionals, and have forgotten that their role is actually a vocational one. If you decide to put yourself up as caring for your nation and the people who live here, that is a vocation, it's not a profession. And so I think we, what they have done, successive governments and politicians, is to defend their own domestic political failings. They have had someone to blame. And if you blame the EU, which has been the easy whipping dog for years and years and years, people believe you. And so it has been, I think, partly their failing, but also in not just politics, but in business, and people who have risen to positions of responsibility and power have not acted with responsibility. And, uh, you know, you have to give back to the society that affords your success. And then when you forget that, you pay the price one day. And I think that's where we are. We are paying the price for allowing people to seep through the cracks. Um, how do we get out of it? We're going to have to take a long, hard look at ourselves we're going to have to have really serious conversations, not the, not the nonsense that's in the manifestos at the moment. That's just papering over the cracks. We have really big issues that we haven't even started talking about, that are issues without borders, you know, climate migration, technology, what that will do to the um, workplace, what it will do to taxation. You know, if you have an aging of a population, who is paying tax? If you have 75 jobs going to one robot... Who's going to pay taxes to public services? Um, we have, you know, is education fit for purpose? We have some really big conversations, and instead, everyone's navel-gazing for the next few months. How do they get to the next election? The next... This is not going to create solutions for us in the future. So I think the way we start is actually, to me, a starting point is cross-party workings, where we don't have short-term, but we have longer-term solutions to some of the things I'm talking about, because you can't have three to five year policy making for problems that are so deep seated in society. So to ring fence things like education, the NHS, um, the way our democracy works, uh, the way our electoral system works, these are things we have to work on together. 
not along tribal lines, because I just don't see how we get to the solutions we need to get to. I want to come back uh, in a bit to what you're doing now, and we are in obviously one week to go to the election, but let's talk a little bit about Miller One, as you said, it's now, <laughs> it's now, now cool. cooled. It's very odd having your cases taught in schools. So I find it very strange. <laughs> and they will be, I'm sure, for a long time to come. How did a basically ordinary citizen find herself in that situation that seems just an extraordinary one? I'm quite a fatalist. I think things sort of happen for a reason. Um, and I'm, in an odd way, the challenges of my life, all the things I failed at and had to pick myself up have actually made me stronger. And that's why I think I, it was supposed to be me, me in a very odd way. Um, because the background you probably won't know about the case is that when the referendum was won... Actually, I'll go back a little bit. From October 2015, I was involved in, in the referendum and trying to uh, explain to people why I believed we should remain and reform from within the EU. And then we lost. But having done those sort of seven months of campaigning, I know, this is not me surmising, I know from every green room that I went into at every debate with everybody on the other side of the argument that no one thought Leave was going to win. So there was no plan. The arrogance on both sides was extraordinary. So when the Leave vote happened... I thought, well, what happens next? Obviously, we'll now have a debate about what happens next. Next thing, we were talking about the royal prerogative when Cameron was stepping down, May was anointed without a, a, an election, and then they were talking about this royal prerogative. And I went into meltdown. I mean, literally, because I'm a bit of a geek, and I read Hansard, and I go to bed reading um, uh, uh, about what's happening to our democracy and about the last 10 years or so, actually going back to Blair, our government, our, have been, ministers have been using something called Henry VIII powers more and more. So we've been using more secondary legislation when we should be using primary legislation for a long time. For example, in 2014 to 2015, in one year, Henry VIII powers had been used 96 times to change the way we live our lives. And this is something that the constitutional society reforms, a lot of us have been looking at, and I was part of that. Mm. So I'm afraid I knew what the royal prerogative was, and um, I thought, this is just not going to happen. Of course it's not going to happen. Lots of people would talk about it. Nobody was talking about it. And I happened to be... Um, Mishkon de Rea, who my law firm, I was not a client of, uh, of theirs, and I was at an event that was booked months before where we were going to discuss, in my day job, running an investment company, why the diversity dial hadn't moved in the city. And I might have said some controversial things, <laughs> such as some of the women who are held out as, you know, champions of the city are just men in skirts, because they've gone to the same boarding schools, the same universities, and have the same um, unconscious biases, and that everyone concentrates on external diversity rather than socioeconomic diversity, something along those lines. And a few other things. And uh, one of the uh, senior partners afterwards when we were having drinks sort of said, is there anything else you're passionate about? So it's all his fault. <laughs> and I sort of said, sort of gave him a five-minute rant of why I was really worried about what's happening. He just looked at me and said, I don't know what you're doing tomorrow, but I think you should come and see us. Because the law firms had been over that weekend talking about the royal prerogative. But they never thought they'd be able to find a claimant because everything was so febrile at that time, and they had been talking to two men who were very wealthy, very successful clients of theirs, 
So I joined that meeting in the following day, and whilst we were discussing who would be a claimant, how we would bring the case, we agreed that Mishkon would send a letter to the government saying that they were questioning their action to Mrs. May. And that's when the abuse started. So Mishkon Rare got um, attacked on their website, on their, uh, uh, the, the doors of their offices were attacked, and the other two men said that they wouldn't proceed. So the choice was left to me. And I sat in the meeting, they discussed what it meant, and I just looked at them and said, well, of course I'm going to do it. But what do you mean, no? And I said, if I don't do it, who will? Was there a moment when you thought, when these other two men considered it unsafe, that you No, I said it wavered. was the right thing. No, I said to them it was the right thing, because they were very did famous. did you waver yourself, ever? No, because I made the stupid assumption, or naive assumption, I thought I'd step up, and it was such an important issue because of our unwritten constitution, it would mean that any prime minister in future could use the royal prerogative to change our lives. I mean, this is, it would have been a watershed moment in our constitution. So I said, I'll step up, and lots of academics, lots of other people would join me. So I foolishly thought that they would. Uh, and I don't regret it, because I don't think anyone else would have. But I do wish that more people had been supportive from the... Financially would have been wonderful, but um, more from the point of view of, of moral support and expert input, actually, because I was working with a very small team. We all had our day jobs. Everyone was working in the evening, and um, we, we did an enormous amount of work in a very short space of time. I think I know your answer to this. I've obviously <laughs> read the book, and I know you would have been asked it because people feel that they should ask. You obviously you would. Desperate when you saw the result, the, re- the remain, mm-hmm. um, the result that night. Was your main motive, it, was, it wasn't to do with stopping Brexit? No, because I, again, my naivety, I presumed that I'd win the case. And I'm not saying that because I thought we, any uh, sort of arrogance. It's just the black and white letter in the law, it wasn't such an extraordinary case. Mm. It was actually very simple because we were saying the royal prerogative can only be used on the international plane to change people's rights domestically, you have to have Parliament involved. It was that simple. I presumed that Parliament would then have the debates they hadn't had before. I thought legally they would ask for the impact studies that are required for you to change our economic uh, direction of travel. So I never imagined that they were going to rubber stamp the Article 50 debate, which is what they did. So that I was very upset about. So I, it was about giving the MPs back the power to do their job. That's all I envisage that our case would do. You seem very, you seem obviously a very confident person. In the book, you talk a lot that you have about your nerves, that you're always racing with nerves, and that, in fact, far from being fearless, which you seem to us and you seem on the outside, you are full of fear. Is that right? And that is a good thing to be, you say. I do, and I try really hard not to become hard and tough and inflexible. Because I think if you are, then you don't let people in, you don't let emotions in, and you create a barrier. So it's easy to try and become tough. And I I think we sort of, uh, there's this misconception that that's strength. I don't think it is. I think staying human is what's strong. So I really try hard not to be, to feel. Um, And also the other thing is uh, is to let people in, because the other thing you do when you're very busy and you're fighting, I've been a campaigner for 30 years, So, by the way, I didn't learn this overnight. It's taken me 30 years to learn to be who I am as a campaigner. And the other temptation is that you're so busy and you're so focused 
that you forget to let the people around you love you. And what I mean is you forget to let them get in because you're so busy. And actually, they need to be able to tell you that, and you need that too. So there are so many... It's about staying soft that I think makes you a better campaigner and a better person than, than being this tough individual. And, you know, and I, I remember that in the 90s, I started in the city in 1996, and at that time, I don't know how many in the audience, we all wore these ridiculous pinstripe suits with big shoulder pads and very little jewellery, and we, li- we tried to look like the men. And we were told that was what being a strong woman in the city was about. So wrong. Actually, being who you are is real strength. Mm. But, but you do say that you made a decision early on in your career that you would try not to worry what people thought of you, that you sort of put on an armour and that, that those people close to you are important, but that yes. you should you know, really wanted to make an effort not to worry about what people at work... You said, I think, at one point, <laughs> being a bitch at work, people shouldn't worry so much about being a bitch at work. Tell me, how, you, how do you, have you succeeded in that, in not worrying what other people think of you? Again, you, I've learned how to do it because I think, well, I've gone, I go to work to do a job. I don't go to work to be liked. And if someone says to me, you shouldn't be here, then probably that's exactly where I should be. Um, <laughs> so I've, I've developed... <laughs> I've developed these things because if I was ineffective, nobody would pay me any attention, which is why, you know, I've, as I said, I've been a campaigner for a long time. And I remember back in sort of with my husband when we, after the financial crisis, when we were worried that nothing would change in the city. And I first got my first nickname of the Black Widow Spider. And someone said to me, a journalist in the city said, isn't it terrible that the, you know, the men in the city call you this? And I said, it's great. That means they're worried about me. <laughs> because apparently I could bring down the city all by myself, which is Quite an accolade. But it's that fact is, if people are worried by you, then you're doing something right. So I've sort of given myself little tricks that keep me going. But um, I won't give people the power to tell me who I am, because then they've won. I'm going to be, say and do what I believe is right, and I won't give them that power, because I think the minute you do that, then they have won to some degree. Um, That's why I've never had people, you know, who've kind people who've offered to media train me or I have these people who say to me oh you're so you're so serious when you're on tv talking about politics you should smile more and I'm going it's quite serious what I'm talking about so I I refuse all of that sort of media training and the rest of it because I think I can be soft and loving at home and be funny at home that is my home personality I don't have to share that with you I'm here to do and say something so yes I've, I've found ways and and somebody else who's a great fan of mine apart from the comic books I'm also a Bruce Lee fan, <laughs> and uh, very young one. There's this, um, and it sounds slightly silly, and, and, but it's not. You have to think about it. How do you deal with negative energy is you take it in and redirect it, because if you allow it in, it destroys you, but it's incredibly empowering when you redirect it, and that's one of Bruce Lee's um, sayings, and I, I, do, I do find it uh, now, I mean, every day... It, it, I do worry about myself, though, because I now think it's normal to be to someone tell me they're going to kill me every day. I, I, that's not normal. But I now, it's a good day if someone says they're not, if I don't get a death threat. But Does that get, does that get to you? Of course. Well, it's Getting. strange because now it doesn't really because I think it's normal. But what is still shocking is to get things... By the way, it's not social media, which is what I worry about most. People take the time to write me letters with first-class stamps or send me emails or packages. So the internet doesn't bother me as much as the people who are actually is premeditated in what they're doing. But to get a letter which says, 
because uh, you know my my husband is Jewish and I'm from an ethnic minority or background, is that my children are Mongols and should have been put down at birth. You know that still shocks me because I'm thinking, how can anyone think that? Much less if they thought it to write it and send it to me. Are we in a place now where someone thinks that's okay to do? And I read it and I cry. I cry for my children. And then I think, and now I'm going to fight even harder. Because I don't believe that this has come from nowhere. We've always had people at the fringes of society who've had maybe views that we don't agree with and are seen as extreme. But they were shunned, or they were in, when someone got drunk and two or three people at the end of a bar and a pub. Now it is becoming part of the central conversation in our everyday conversation. Language is being weaponized in a way that is so destructive. And who is calling it out? We're not calling it out enough, and it's being poisoned through platforms that have no responsibility. So I do think we have to stand up more than ever before we wake up one morning. And it's a very different world that we're going to live in. Do you point a lot of the blame at this right-wing media who treated you very badly? Again, humour is very important. Um, the, the Daily Mail, I will always name them, um, <laughs> who decided that they would um, uh, darken my photograph. It was quite an extraordinary experience. And then when they kept writing foreign-born, I did send their uh, legal counsel a letter and say... That's absolutely fine, but will you be writing foreign-born Boris Johnson? Because it should be a level playing field. Um, they replied? No, of course not. Um, but the other thing I did, and I did send them a letter to say thank you, was they actually sent... It wasn't just them. It was a group of journalists who went to the village my father was born in, 3,500 miles away. Think about that, to find dirt on our family, or on me and whatever. So they'll try and find anything... And um, I did say thank you very much because I've discovered that when you're on a public platform, you know, you have to hire people who are very expensive to do that. And they did it free of charge. So I do thank them for um, discovering that I don't actually have any. (laughs) 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 And I've outed myself so many times in my book and my conversations that there's nothing to find. But what about the media in general? Because there's somebody who's obviously dedicated to holding politicians to account, apart from the Daily Mail, do you think that some of the media are doing an okay job at that, or have you lost oh, faith entirely in, in everything? Look, we're, we're going through a time that's not new. In the rise of populism, every hundred years or so, we see this. There's a playbook of how you disrupt democracies in society. You discredit academics and experts, um, attack the rule of law and judges, and there's appropriation of the press, who then become vehicles for propaganda. So that is, it, there's nothing, you know, this is like a, literally a Janet and John playbook of the rise of populism, and that's what we're seeing again. Um, What is so dangerous is that you have such powerful uh, barons now who own so few of them who have an agenda. And so you have the ownership of media is a problem, as far as I'm concerned. Um, The lack of regulation, um, Ipso is not fit for purpose. We need Leveson too. Uh, The fact that you have online now where articles can go up, um, and if you have comments underneath, that is not regulated because it's according to Ipso, they haven't written it. So I can have death threat after death threat on those comments, and they'll do nothing about it, because their view is they haven't written it. But they should be modifying it. They're publishing platforms. You know, and it, you don't need new laws. This whole idea we need new laws. We have laws about inciting racial and sexual violence. The laws of uh, malicious communications already exist. You just need to enforce them. 
So it's not about the medium, it's about the message. So I think we need to just keep things simpler and call out the media who are not behaving in a way that media should. But I'd say, coming back to where we are at the moment, media are not there to allow politicians or commentators to, um, if you like, proliferate their, their propaganda. They're there to cross-examine and question. And I don't understand why they're not doing that job. To allow a politician who has got a hymn sheet from the night before which says, this is what we're going to say that day, and you get four or five politicians who turn up across the media saying something that's not true and it's not called out, I don't understand. So that is not the role of, of I think, good journalism is about interrogating the person you're interviewing in a way where you get to the truth. Did you ever consider being a journalist? Funny enough. You'd be a very good one. Funny enough, I was actually, I was actually um, approached years ago. I don't know if anyone remembers HTV in, in the Midlands, and they were um, interviewing for uh, newscasters. And I think they have this thing, oh, we must have somebody who's colored woman, who speaks nicely. And I, so I managed to get to... Um, but that was only when I was very early 20s. No, but I'm, no, I, I have... The instincts I've learned are from my legal training. I'd say to anybody, even if you don't practice... The discipline of studying the law um, arms you with tools that takes you through life and allows you to conduct yourself in a particular way. And I have always, I think, that is what has held me in good stead, is my, my legal training. And one of the things you do, I'm going to quote you back, a brilliant thing you say about language, which fascinated me, and I love it. You said, men tend to use words as weapons. They deliberately employ the most complex, technical, and supposedly intellectual language to freeze the rest of us out. I do the opposite. I've learned that I can make things accessible. I translate. I tell a story to engage people emotionally as well as intellectually. That's what you think is... Yes, I don't understand why someone thinks it's, it's a good idea to baffle somebody else. Surely you want them to understand and take, you want to take them on a journey. And that means, you know, in my world, it came from sort of investments. It's the idea of uh, you're asking for someone's money, but you're going to tell them, oh, don't understand anything I'm telling you. Just trust me. Surely they should be doing quite the opposite, is explaining to you so you completely understand, so you can make an informed choice. That's what we should be doing. We should, this whole idea of, of intellectualizing um, and using jargon, I find very disheartening. I think it, it, it's, it's not helpful to anybody. And that is what the politicians ultimately are doing. Well, that's using because the they're jargon. not very bright, most of them. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I've had three and a half years now of being very close up. I'm quite astonished at how I can go onto a program like Newsnight or, or, or Question Time, whatever, and I know I'm going to talk about a particular subject and I will research it. We have the internet. And I'm sitting there and thinking, this is your job, this is your brief, you're the minister, and I know more than you? How is that possible? And again, it comes back to this arrogance that they, don't, they really think that they don't need to work that hard. And I really think one of the things we've got wrong is having people who see politics as a profession. You know, in so many other countries, you can only go in for a year, four years. I think we ought to bring that back. So, first of all, you have to work, and then you have to give some of your time to being a politician, four or five years, however long, and then you have to go back to your job. So you have real-life experience that you can bring to the role. Mm. Talking about um, real-life experience... One of the things you said at the beginning is you became the person that you are because of the challenges you've faced along the way. And you've faced some ex extraordinary challenges and some um, ups and downs. And one of the things that you talk about in your book is having your daughter and how that helped you build up, ultimately, your inner strength. Can you tell us a little bit about your first daughter? Well, she's one reason I really became a campaigner, or my first campaigning, 
So she's now um, 31, 32, 31. Um, and I was so looking forward to having my beautiful baby girl. Um, but I don't know if anyone here remembers what the NHS was like in the late 70s, 80s. It was failing. And she was born on the night where we didn't have enough health visitors. We had shortage of pediatric nurses. And so there was no one to deliver her. So she was starved of oxygen. And uh, I was told that she should be taken away from me because there was no care. And I thought, what do you mean taken away? She's my child. So I fought all the advice. Everyone told me she should be taken away, and I wouldn't have that. But then, so I managed to keep her. But then as she got older and was getting towards schooling age, it's sort of two and a half, three, I was told of this thing called a statement you could have so children could get help at school. But I discovered you had to have a lot of money. You had to have access, expert lawyers, consultants. You had to have this report written before the local authority would even look at it. And I just couldn't understand why every child didn't have that access so that was my first campaign, was to try and get every child in the UK, every parent, access to a statement, which then ended up in the Special Education Act that I wrote text for. So that was the first campaign, big campaign I ever did. And I have to say, I was told a couple of days ago that all of that, we're almost gone completely full circle in 30 years, that now it's almost becoming impossible for parents to, become, to get statements. I never thought we'd go back there again. But that was it. I, wanted to, I couldn't understand why anyone thought I was going to give up my, my baby. So she sort of woke the lioness, I suppose, in me. And uh, she teaches me most days because the other thing is she's extraordinary in that she, her mental age is about five or six, but she has an emotional and empathetic intelligence that I think we all forget about. She's quite black and white, so she calls things out when she sees them wrong. She doesn't understand why people are mean to each other. She reminds me that, you know, if I ever forget to have a hug, she's always there going, you know, you've forgotten a hug. Um, and she just reminds me of how special touching and loving someone is. And so she's my teacher most days. And you had to show extraordinary resilience. I think there's a time when you slept in the car, just the two of you. And Well, yes, apparently I'm pretty good at making my life miserable. Um, <laughs> And making bad choices. But then I picked myself back up again. So um, her father, who was from a very well-off family, we split because he wanted her to go into the institution and his family, and so we, we, we separated then. And then I met this wonderful man who told me how wonderful I was, how beautiful, funny. Um, he had a family, three family, and I thought, my gosh, this is a ready-made solution. Because as a parent, I was guilty of having her as a single parent, and trying to work and, and look after her. And so I fell for it all and turned out to be somebody who was incredibly brutal. So I'm a victim of domestic violence because everything he saw in me, he then, after the day after we got married, he then tried to break in me. Um, and it's quite extraordinary that the person you trust and you tell everything to is the one, is the person who then tries to literally send you mad and make you feel as though you're drowning. And so the only way I could see was to leave. And because he was very successful, very well respected, and nobody believed me, the police in those times, I mean, she was 16 at the time, my daughter, I just thought I need to leave. So I picked her up. I couldn't tell because everything, all the money, everything was in his name. He had forged my signature for everything, so everything was all in his name. 
So I had nothing, and I didn't want him to find us. So all I had was my car, so I drove away, and I, I thought, I can't see my family because he'll go there, and I don't want to endanger them. Um, I don't want to tell my friends because, again, I wanted to protect them. Um, so the only thing I could do was the little money. So we slept in a car for um, three weeks in a car park um, in the south side of London. And because she had special needs, the light and the noise was frightening to her. But every night I'd have her on my chest, um, and I knew she was safe, and I was safe. And I'd plot my next business. So I wrote my business plan in the back of that car for my next business I was going to launch, and then went to see her father, her, her, her father, and said, I need help. I'd never taken anything from him, and he said, of course. So um, I then ended up with a little flat. But yes, it was, it was an extraordinary time to have to worry every day about which car park I'd go to. And everything I've ever done, I sort of approach like a project, so I plan everything. I'm very meticulous about timing, where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to do it. Um, and we survived the three weeks. But it taught me everything I've done, everything I've been through has taught me. I I've never looked back and thought, it's made me weaker. It's always made me stronger. Mm. And the other moment that perhaps was certainly not planned was the fact that you didn't actually complete your first law degree. I mean, it's extraordinary you said that, you know, you're, you're a failed law student who brought about the hugest constitutional... <laughs> yes, these are sort of the circles and ironies, um, uh, and they're beautiful things that happen too, because um, I always wanted to be like my father. I don't know if any of you have read um, a play called uh, Voyage Around My Father by John Mortimer, but I studied um, English at sixth form, and when I came, there was a passage in that play or line that said... John Mortimer talking about his father, and he said he sent words into the courtroom as if they were soldiers into battle. And I remember reading that thinking, that's my father. And I just wanted to be him. So I always wanted to become a criminal barrister, and I was about to take my finals, and I was attacked. And so um, in, those, in those days, again, looking back, I was seen as being too Western, um, I hadn't joined the right society, so the Asian society couldn't understand why I hadn't joined the Asian society. The Pakistani society couldn't understand why I hadn't... Because they presumed they knew my culture and where I came from, and they thought I was a disgrace, the way I, I was too Western. So I was attacked one night um, going home, which meant I, I was very injured for about seven months, so I never took my finals. But what's so extraordinary is that totally unbeknownst to my university exactly 30 years to the date when I should have graduated, they gave me an honorary doctorate. <laughs> and they didn't know about it. You say that was one of the most emotional days it was, of your life. It was, because I looked it back and I realised it was exactly the same month that I would have got my graduation. Um, and as I said, the university had no idea. So I told them the story when I was talking to the graduates and the students when I gave my speech and... Uh, I said to them, you never know when you'll be back here again. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about where we're at um, now. Y you, do you feel frustrated? You've been through all this <laughs> fighting for our democracy, and yet it feels incredibly fragile. And also, you know, tell us, I, I, we were talking backstage, this hashtag, uh, page 48 of oh. the manifesto is now trending today. It's something you wrote about in The Independent last week, saying that our Prime Minister has the audacity to challenge democracy with democracy what's what's going on 
So I, when the manifesto came out, I, I noticed this page 48, which says basically that one of the things they're going to look at is change the way the royal prerogative, the House of Lords, the judicial review. And there's actually wording in there to say that somebody can't bring a case, use judicial review to prolong or be used for political means. In other words, me. Um, it, it is, I mean, they're so thin-skinned politicians, honestly. But anyway, it is... That page is extraordinarily dangerous because what they're saying is they're going to revisit our constitution and, and the powers and how the division and the separation between the executive, the prime minister's executive and parliament. But you have to read it, which is what my article was about, is you have to read it in conjunction with the Withdrawal Act because the draft withdrawal agreement that the government have put forward, Mr. Johnson's put forward, actually has seven clauses that also redraft Henry VIII powers and the powers that would sit with the government. So if you look at them cumulatively, those two documents, they are rewriting our constitution so that Parliament will not have the same scrutiny role. The House of Lords will just be a rubber stamp. And this is even bigger than Brexit because it will mean that if there is a, a conservative majority government who, by the way, is going to redraw the boundary lines, which gives them another sort of 30 seats, then we are looking at an autocratic government in the UK for the possibly the next five to ten years. And that, to me, is so shocking, I couldn't understand why nobody was talking about that. They kept saying that the manifesto was so bland. And I was thinking, no, it isn't. Look at this page. So I wrote the article, and I tried to get it into media, and I tried to get it on television, and nobody would, would take it. Um, the Independent published it, but I couldn't get onto any media outlets. And all of a sudden, in the last 24 hours, they've started talking about it. But I find it quite extraordinary that um, it has to be, somebody has to pick it up. Um, it can't be me, because there's a very odd thing going on now about um, the fact that um, the government, and I know this from uh, whistleblowers, um, and it started with the prorogation case, that they're very, very angry that I'm taking them on. I mean, who do I think I am? I want to tell you something or share with you something about the prorogation case and why it's actually even more important than the first case. We were working with um, whistleblowers, a couple of whistleblowers, and do you remember that the government were pretty blasé about the bill, uh, so the Henry, uh, uh, the, the Ben Act, and all that was coming through there, and they were saying, oh, we don't have to worry about it, we can get past it. They really weren't very concerned, if you remember. And the reason we were told is that um, they never believed that the Supreme Court would actually rule on the case. They thought the Supreme Court would say it was non-justiciable, which meant they wouldn't actually make a, a ruling, they'd just throw it out. And they would prorogue Parliament, but then not bring it back till after the 31st of October. So that was the plan, and that's why we're in the mess we're in at the moment, is because they had no plan B. They were absolutely certain that I would lose and that they would pro they, Parliament would not have been brought back and we would have crashed out with no deal. So why do you think now that there's a, a ploy not to listen to you, as you were saying before? It's quite interesting because um, it's not me, it's, it's um, some of my um, uh, sort of, uh, people who track conversations in media and, and media coverage have said it's quite peculiar that... Um, I'm never mentioned in the prorogation case. It's always Lady Hale. Um, and I, I, it's literally as though I, I had nothing to do with it. And if you look in all the column inches, 
Um, there's this idea that, that they won't t mention my name because it means that they would have to then accept that I won the case. And it was this thing that, uh, you know, this woman, again, they call me apparently this woman. Um, I find it quite extraordinary. I suppose, as you said at the beginning, it's flattering that it you're obviously way, doing something think, right. No, no, no. Haven't they got better things to do? I mean, I, we're in such a mess. I would have thought they'd redirect their energy elsewhere. I know you would have been asked this so many times, but why? what stops you trying to work to repair things from the inside? Why don't you go into <laughs> politics? Why do you see the place to do that from the outside? Because we're in, there is so much to do. And I believe you can only do it by being nonpartisan. Um, because I think there are, there are good things that have come out of where we are. I know you might think that's an odd thing for me to say. But as a country, we've not really been uh, a population that talks about politics. We're now talking about politics. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, young people, are, we have more engagement in politics. And people have understood that politics doesn't happen in a building. It's actually the way their lives operate. So, and I think that's really exciting. I think we're also going to be talking about um, partially codifying our constitution. We're only the one of three modern societies that don't have, uh, modern democracies that don't have some sort of a codified constitution. I think we'll start talking about reforming our electoral system, more devolution of policy and finance, which is about time. We have the biggest north-south divide of any modern uh, civilization um, or country. And I think there are big things that will come out of this if the politicians don't get away with just papering over and moving on. So I think to bring all the change, I can't be aligned to a party. You know, th these, are, these are issues that are bigger than a particular party. But, but you're very active at the moment. I know you've been yes. all over the place today. I'm yeah. amazed you made it. I could see you on Twitter everywhere, <laughs> thinking, how is she going to get here this evening as well? But you've got this so it's a tactical voting yes. um, website. Do you think that it can work, what you're trying to do? What are you trying to do? What's the aim, and, and, and well, can the only you work? Well, the only way to stop a Tory majority, which will take us to a Queen's speech and a, uh, the act passing before Christmas, and then there, there's nothing we can do for the next however many years, four or five years, um, is actually to dent a Tory majority. And why do I think it will work? Because I did it in 2017, when I formed the first, I launched the biggest tactical campaign in the UK, and Mrs. May, we seem to forget, was actually looking at a 180-seat majority. Do you remember that? She was, it was extraordinary. I mean, she helped, obviously. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was the first time we did tactical voting, and rather than reinventing the wheel, I basically flew in the team who'd worked with Trudeau in Canada, um, and, and they worked with us. So I came up with a whole... It, it's wonderful how history is being... Re, not rewritten, but it's the whole... The arguments are going on at the moment. Because it's the first time I'd got YouGov to do MRP analysis. It had never been done in the UK before 2017. Um, so, in, in the scale that we did it then. We dented that majority. We got 6.5 million people to tactically vote. I did it again in the EU election. We communicated with 11.3 million people in nine days um, in that tactical vote for the European elections. It's much tougher this time. But we have to try. Because if I go back to the fact that if you have a majority government that, is going, uh, that are going to change the rules by which our constitution, our democracy works, where do we go from there? And if, say, we come to the 1st of July and there is no agreement, we leave with no deal. And this is not actually about a 
belief that Brexit, this is what I feel, and I know this from conversations I have, it's not about um, believing that Brexit is about making our country better. This is sneaking in an ideology through the back door of Brexit, which is about um, lowering our regulations, our standards in my world, and in investments. You know, there is serious can talk about, well, we will reduce money laundering checks, we won't be doing the same, you know, foreign investments will come from countries who we would say morally we wouldn't get um, foreign investments from. It will change. It will change, and it will be under the auspices of we need to, as a survivalist economy, we need to do these things. Um, so I, I do worry about that. So I think the only way to stop that is for people to use their head and not their heart and lend their vote to the party because we have a deficit in our first past the post system. We can't change that right now, but we can actually get people to lend their vote so that we can t return a mixed parliament rather than a nodding dog parliament, because remember, all the candidates for the Conservative Party have had to sign a pledge. So, you know, that is not a democratic parliament. We will not end up with one if, we, uh, if they have a majority. Well, what about in more, in more general terms, people who l look at you and think... Okay, you really show that one person can do an extraordinary amount, but I could never do that. I mean, the subtitle of, of your book is Life Lessons in Speaking Out, Standing Tall and Leading the Way. But what would be your advice to people in this room, to me, who think they would love to, to change things, but you don't feel that you have the power to do that as one person? You learn it. It's taken me a long time. Um, it becomes part of who you are the more you do it. It just is part of my personality. Um, but I think, don't think about big things. I think there's always an excuse why you can't do something big, be it at work or at home or whatever. I'd say, if there's someone crying, stop and talk to them. If there's a neighbor who needs help, help them. That's what being human is about. Helping is that it's, you know, other people matter, and that's all, that's where you start from. Um, it's not about glory or trying to get accolades or anything else. And you don't even have to be at the front. Sometimes it's about connecting people who can then work together. There are many different ways, but I'd say don't leave it to somebody else to fix problems you see on your own doorstep. Start there. Um, I could ask so many more questions, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand over. I'm sure you've got uh, many yourselves. There's some roving mics, and if you could speak quite clearly so that we can and perhaps keep... Um, or maybe no one, the first person, and then they'll... Yes. If you could keep it relatively short so we can get... Hi there, Gina. Thank you so Hello. much. It's been wonderful to listen to you tonight. I just wonder when you think the ISC report is going to be released, and to what extent <laughs> you think that the government has been compromised by it in the referendum? I think they've played it wrong there, because there's so much speculation about what's in it. Um, they might have been better to actually release it. Um, because now everyone's wondering what's in it. Uh, we did try, up until the day before Parliament was dissolved, we did try, a, a, a group of lawyers, we did try to get published. We don't think it will be until next spring, we've been told, if at all. Um, but I think they've done themselves more harm than good than by not releasing it. Um, I find it quite scary that you had to take on this role when obviously we've got an elected parliament and uh, an opposition. So what, why was it that you had to <coughs> fill that void and why wasn't the opposition maybe doing that instead? I, I have to say, I agree with you. If, if I have any annoyance at anyone, it's at the official opposition because actually to have a functioning democracy, you need to have a functioning opposition. 
And they're as complicit as a government in this, in where we are, uh, up to today, I think, is that they have had many, many opportunities. And the fact is, they now say, well, we made the government do this. And, you know, they, they take all the glory and they say that they stood up. No, they didn't. Um, and even when they had the opportunity, when, we, when I won the case, because I shouldn't have ever brought the case, they should have stood up and said at the ballot box, you know, at, at, in Parliament, that you cannot use a royal prerogative. You know, we, they, there is a shadow attorney general. You don't need to hire lawyers. That's what they're there to do. Um, but even when we won, and they, 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 could, they could have said, we need to have these impact studies. We need to make sure that we don't trigger Article 50 until we've discussed what sort of Brexit we want. What is the plan? That's all they needed to ask. Um, so they didn't do that the first time. And then after the election, they still didn't stand up. And I'll tell you one other occasion. So I've had three summers where my poor family have not had a summer. We've been preparing cases. Last year, this year was obviously the prorogation case, but last year I spent the whole summer preparing a case um, on the DUP payment. Do you remember that one billion pounds? Because that was illegal. And the government, the opposition did not say anything about that. The reason I never went to court is because at the end of the summer, the government said, yes, we do need to have an act of parliament. What happened next was that the act was the Supply and Estimates Bill the following March, and the opposition did not debate the payment. So they have serially failed in their duties in opposition. And that is why we are in a mess, because we do not have, at the moment, a functioning democracy where we have a responsible, honest government, and we do not have a courageous opposition. Sorry, I'm gonna... uh, thank you. Th uh, thank you very much for sharing your time as well with us. Um, based on your answer, what you were talking about, um, the complicity about uh, Her Majesty's loyal opposition, what are, what are your odds on a coalition government between the Labour and the Conservatives? And, uh, <laughs> and, well, they're and, both uh, extremes uh, of the same, uh, you know, you could say they're the same, uh, different sides of the same coin, but... Um, I have, I, I, I have a second part as well. Uh, what are, <laughs> what are, when do you think the next general election is going to be then? Ah, now, th that's a very interesting question. Because if I had my crystal ball, my quick look through crystal ball, I'd say if we are successful and there isn't a conservative majority, actually, if there is a majority of less than 10, there'll still be issues with the 759 different treaties they have to discuss. But... If they come to the fact that if it's a, a coalition government that somehow gets to um, a referendum in autumn because July is too early, whichever way we get to, I think we could see three new leaders of the main parties or the parties and another election in about a year to 18 months. Because that coalition is going to be, from a policy point of view, will be very fragile the only thing they would have in common is a final say referendum. And depending on that result, they would then part waves. So I can see new leaders and a new election in about a year, 18 months. What's your view about citizens' assemblies as part of the democratic process? I'm a huge fan of deliberative democracy. Um, it started as a, as a debate in Australia in 98, and there's an international discussion going on about this, because what we're seeing in the UK is not just happening in the UK, it's happening, the rise of populism. 
So if direct democracy is too demanding on citizens and representative democracy, there is a trust deficit, then deliberative democracy sits in the middle, which is the whole um, assembly idea. Um, and actually, we've seen it played out very successfully uh, when we didn't expect it, which is in Northern Ireland. So because Stormont hasn't been sitting, we've had what's called, they call it chapters. And what's been so extraordinary about the way they have been working is that ordinary citizens have been very involved, but a high number of women have been involved as well and have been talking about local policies and local politics. So citizens advise uh, uh, assemblies where you have, say, 100 or so uh, citizens who do almost like a, a complicated jury service for a year and then meet and talk about different uh, areas, topics, and then feed up to a council that then feeds up to politicians is actually something that I think is, is worth exploring and may fix that distrust and distance between the population and politicians. So I'm, I really do think it's something we should be talking about. Um, I'm a Liberal Democrat, and I've been canvassing people in up and down uh, several streets in London. And one of the things that keeps coming back is, is that if we have another referendum, we're going to have civil unrest because those who wanted to leave did not. And it does concern me. I mean, I want to remain no matter what, but uh, how do we answer? I feel that if we had a referendum that went 70 or 60% um, leave, the remain people would quite happily say, hats off, you know what you're asking for, we will accept it. If it went the other way, though, and we had a 70% remain, we are not going to have the leave side saying we're happy with this, and it can be quite a serious situation. So the next time you knock on a door and someone says that to you, say, how do they know it? Have they actually left their house and gone up north to find out or any area that's ever voted leave? Because I tell you, I have done. It's not going to happen. We're not going to have civil unrest. People voted leave because their lives are really hurting. They don't, most of them are having to go to food banks on a daily basis just to live. The idea that they're going to come in hordes to London or to any city to create civil unrest is a figment of particular media who are trying to stir up our politicians. People want a solution, and they want to know that there are policies in place that are going to fix their lives, or at least start to fix their lives. So the biggest problem I think that has happened, and again, it's on our side as well, is who's been talking about the Remain deal? Who's been talking about how we... You know, how we fix things. Nobody has bothered to go and do that. You can't just say status quo. It's not going to, we haven't defended the EU, and we haven't talked about the peace project in the EU, and we have not talked about fixing Britain. You can't ignore people when they're actually crying out to be listened to. So if only outside had spent some of the people who put themselves up as the leaders, had actually put more time into trying to communicate and tell the story of what happens next, we wouldn't have other people occupying the airways with this scaremongering about civil unrest. I have not seen a single town, village, pub, area where there would be civil unrest. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. This week's podcast starred Gina Miller and was presented by Hannah McInnes. Gina's autobiography, Rise, is published by Canongate and out now. The show was produced by me, Vas Christodoulou, and edited by John Doughty. 
If you enjoyed this episode, visit us at howtoacademy.com for a wealth of live events with artists and thinkers as diverse as Ai Weiwei, William Gibson, Barry Weiss and Sophie Walker. And you'll find an archive of films and podcasts featuring the very best from our programme of talks, debates, conferences and festivals. Thanks for listening.